0: I once saw on a cash register in a little meat market in Mississippi that said when all is said and done more will have been said than done. I tell my students that as artists their challenge is to sort of reverse that And, uh, and raising goats is a reverse of that.
1: In the world of farming, Tom Rankin is something of a goat partisan. His interest in the animal began years ago when, as a young photographer and documentarian, he bought two goats to help him tame his unruly yard in Oxford, Mississippi.
0: First two goats I I bought, I was renovating an old house in Oxford that had really grown up all around it. And I decided I was going to be working for the summer inside between, was moving from Delta State University to Ole Miss. So I had the summer off. And I decided while I was working on the inside of the house, I needed some cleanup on the outside. So I went and bought two goats and I tethered them, put them on a chain, tethered them and moved them around the house. I mean, it really was an overgrown house and had this idea that they could be working outside while I was working inside. One of them got loose immediately and we never found it. And and I kept the other one. And then uh, a friend gave us a second goat, Nanette, a, a nanny named Nanette. So the kids grew up with sort of pet goats in the back. We lived next to the cemetery, uh, the the city cemetery, St. Peter's Cemetery, where, where Faulkner's buried. And Nanette would get out periodically, and I would go over, and there'd be two Oxford policemen scared to go get her, and trying to get me to come over and please get this goat. We had her in a parade once. Yeah, it's where I did develop some fondness and confidence for goats.
1: Welcome to 27 Views, the podcast where we visit with some of our favorite writers in the American South. Here we explore what it means to live in, write about, and wander this corner of the country. From the North Banks of the Eno River in Hillsborough, North Carolina, I'm your host, Elizabeth Woodman. Today we talk to writer, documentarian, and goat farmer Tom Rankin, who teaches at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies. He also tends a herd of goats on a stretch of pasture in North Carolina's Piedmont. Tom interrupted his goat hoof trimming duties one rainy morning to talk to us about goat farming and to read from his story, Raising Goats to Their Rightful Place, from the Carolina Table.
0: We raise goats, and to be more specific, Jill and I raise meat goats. I get asked from time to time, often at a refined gathering or museum opening. Something along the lines of, do you make cheese? No, I always reply, adding that we barely have time to feed our herd in the busy mornings, much less find time for daily milking. They are meat goats, I add. The reaction is akin to what I imagine you see when you reveal a very, very serious diagnosis, a concerned furrowed brow, a look of confused incredulity, a face at a loss for words. Goats unquestionably provide the most popular meat worldwide and have always impressed me with their relative self-sufficiency. That's not to say they don't need care and animal husbandry, but relative to the creatures moving around us day to day, they're a self-sufficient group, admirable in many ways.
1: What made you decide to become a goat farmer and to, to harvest the meat?
0: I wanted to raise some kind of animal And having a regular job every day makes raising something like a cow much more difficult, or raising cows. And and I wanted to raise something I could do by myself. At Duke, I work with lots of people. I didn't want to have to have lots of people to raise an animal. Goats, you can almost handle every goat by yourself, uh, at least if you're, yeah, you can. And they're relatively self-sufficient. More self-sufficient than most humans and most other animals, so those two things are the reasons that I decided to raise goats, and I decided to raise meat goats because I I thought it was all it. It also is easier than than having a dairy farm of, of goats. And then why did I pro- why did I, I quickly decided if I'm going to raise this and 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 make sure they eat good grass and that I move them around and I keep their parasites down. That I, it's great meat. Why sh- why shouldn't I also eat it? So it sort of a, was an evolution. The other thing that that you know raising them does, I don't think I thought about this when I started, but it connects you with communities you wouldn't be connected with otherwise, and that is um, expansive. Um, the world is a, a bigger place if you raise animals, and it connects you with other communities, and and you're connected with them not just as a tourist but as a participant
1: he's up before dawn to tend his herd then off to duke university center for documentary studies for a full day of teaching with his own prolific documentary and photographic work wedged into the schedule somehow it raises the question how are there enough hours in the day to be a goat farmer or maybe there's something i'm missing
0: the other reason i raise goats that I, this, this is that it would be another essay <laughs> is is because I do work in the university and um, and universities are from my experience um, there's a lot of talk there's a lot of unresolved issues there's very little closure and finality and oftentimes you know it involves having to get together with lots of other people raising goats for me is me and when I trim Hooves, I know they're trimmed and they're finished. So it's a it's kind of the opposite of working in a university. And it's been, I mean, the truth of it is that all the other reasons I've said I raise goats are really not probably true. <laughs> probably the reason I do it is that it's it's a sort of psychological balance and keeps me sane when working in a university where, you know, there's a kind of endless process that never comes to conclusion. I tell my students that I once saw a, on a cash register in a little meat market, coincidentally in Mississippi, that said, "When all is said and done, more will have been said than done." And that, that as artists, they're you know their challenges to sort of reverse that. And uh, and raising goats is a reverse of that. You know, when all is said and done, you may you better have done more than you said, or else you're not going to have any. The goats aren't going to live. They're going to die of parasites. They're going to get out. The fence is going to go down, and on and on
1: our tastes are so predictive of where we come from and we haven't grown up eating goat yeah. and there's a lot of resistance as you've mentioned in your piece. So I'm wondering, do you, do you see a day when we'll be able to go into an eatery, a local eatery or an eatery on the highway and
0: order a goat burger? Well, you, for a while you could go to the wooden nickel and order what they call their sloppy goat,
1: the wooden nickel being the, on, Church, on Church street, in, street Hillsborough.
0: in Hillsborough. So yeah, I think it's going to take, it. know, it's almost going to take a restaurant that, tries to do that, you know, or, or some restaurants. I think it is becoming more common, but it's it's incremental. Yeah. I mean, if you drive around the rural South, you see more and more fields of goats.
1: I wonder why we're so resistant to it as well, you a culture. Well, know,
0: you know, there's a lot of farmers in the in their 80s, 70s, 80s, Southern farmers who grew up eating goat. There was They often had goat roasts on the 4th of July. So, at one time, it was more common to cook a goat. It wasn't a staple of the you know, it wasn't on the table on a regular basis. It was more of a holiday thing. Like lamb is now. Like lamb is now, right.
1: I wonder what happened.
0: Farms got bigger and bigger, and there were less yeoman, sort of small farms, and and if you don't have a small farm, you don't have just three goats running around and decide to eat one of them. I think that's what happened. Over the years, the largest buyers of our goats have been new immigrant communities. Spanish speakers to whom goat meat is a favorite, East and West Africans, and folks from Asia. To be sure, there's a gradual shift in the American palate, with more and more farmer's markets and new cuisine restaurants featuring goat meat. But the pace of change is slow. Recently, I took two goats to Chondre Hallel Meats for processing. I loaded two of our female boar goats, one white and one brown, both around a year old, into the back of my Toyota Tacoma for a drive from Hillsborough to Siler City. A strictly halal processing facility, Chondry employs over 20 people of diverse backgrounds and ethnicities, all working in the pork-free plant where each animal is ritually blessed before a major artery is severed for proper bleeding. Cows, sheep, and goats keep Chondry running at full capacity with a long wait for anyone who wants cows slaughtered. I returned to the office where Wasim and I stood at the counter and started filling out the processing directions. The office walls are covered with wallpaper depicting early American scenes of a livery of horses, of what looks to be an old house or inn, of an early steam engine. The nostalgic images provide an incongruous backdrop for an Arabic-lettered tapestries and certificates of appreciation. How do you want your shoulders, Wasim asked. Sliced into steaks, I said, with a slight rise at the end, suggesting I was not certain of the answer. How thick, he asked. About a half inch, I decided quickly. We moved over the whole body of a goat. All of the anatomy, as understood by a meat cutter, until I answered all the necessary questions, documented all the processing instructions.
1: I was so impressed with the cultural cross-currents in this piece for that very reason, because educated white people are kind of horrified by the notion that you're not raising them for, to milk them and make cheese, but to, to harvest meat. And then you go to a Pakistani Muslim in Siler City to have them processed, and you sell them to Latino communities and African communities, Asian communities. So there's this amazing diversity that comes into play in um, attitudes toward the goat as food.
0: Yeah, they become sort of a crossroads, a meeting place, the goat does. Um, and it, it happens in the most unanticipated ways. You get a, somebody drives in the driveway and says, do you sell any of your goats? And they can be a fourth generation North Carolinian from Person County, or it can be somebody who barely speaks English from Guatemala or, or Mexico. And it's the most unanticipated and oftentimes the most kind of wonderful exchange. I mean, I don't know that I would recommend you know, everybody start raising goats so that will happen, but it's certainly part of what I enjoy about it and, and and what I would miss if they were, if I was raising ostriches or something else and that wasn't happening. They also get out a lot. I mean, a goat, in, in one sense, is a simple thing to raise. In another sense, they're always trying to get out. And so you meet people that way, too. Goats populate both the New and Old Testaments in abundance. The most notable reference is in Matthew chapter 25. He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And from there, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. It is this verse that so clearly outlines an old world hierarchy as those, quote, on the right are advised to inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Sometimes referred to as the parable of the sheep, we learn that those on the right, the sheep, the redeemed, are eternally saved from those on the left, the goats, the lost, who are forever damned. What do I make of such on the morning watch, on the daily feeding, as I trim hooves of our modest herd? Might there be something noble about raising an animal that the Bible uses as the symbol of the lost? the unredeemed.
1: I'm curious about the spirituality mm-hmm. that you feel as a farmer and as, as somebody who loves animals.
0: Well, I think, I think it is spirituality. I think it's the, I mean, part of spirituality is, is ritual is the daily pattern. And part of it is what happens with daily patterns and what you begin to notice about the invisibility of things. And And animal lives and having a connection to animal lives is a very spiritual enterprise. Having a connection between what you eat and knowing exactly where it comes from is for me much more of a spiritual enterprise than going to Whole Foods and connects you closer to the day-to-day spiritualism of, of life. I think farming does that for me in the same way that some people take a hike in the woods and feel renewed. I trimmed goat hooves this morning, for instance. I mean, I've got the stuff, my hands are marked with the stuff that you put on for hoof rot. And every day there's a limping goat in this wet weather we've got. So I can honestly say I would love to go out and not have to fool with a goat hoof every morning. It is sort of ritualistic, and it's also a responsibility, and it also is an annoyance all at once, and there's something about the connectivity of all those things that is spiritual. I returned to pick up the meat several days later. Abdul Chandri was the only one in the office. He asked me to wait a few minutes while he went outside to try to catch a goat that had escaped from his adjacent pasture. He returned, sweaty and tired, saying it had gone in the woods and he'd catch it later. I offered to help, but he declined. Driving home with a cooler full of goat meat of the highest quality, I couldn't help but wonder why the goats get such bad treatment in the Bible and in the popular American imagination. We call the player that drops the pass or strikes out in the ninth inning the goat, perhaps an outgrowth of that animal damned forever and without redemption. Isn't it possible that the Bible got it all wrong when it comes to goats? That the parable of the sheep is just a story and not to be taken as anything else? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last, also from Matthew, may well be the best way to understand the hierarchy of meat, of seeing the possible slow-cooked redemption of goats.
1: After listening to Tom's story about driving goats to the processing facility, I wondered if there are goats he becomes attached to. They become like pets, and he could never put them in the back of his pickup for that trip to Siler City.
0: A joke that you, you need to have more than you can name and more than you can get close to or else you'll never be able to sell them. For me, anyway, a kind of endless conundrum. There's some animals, the nannies and the mothers, that have had you know, multiple kids and that have, we've had for five, six, seven years that I could, you know, I probably should, but I could never take them down to the butcher. I, I could sell them, but several we've kept to let them just live out their life and then they die naturally. And that's actually not any better than having sold them to somebody and said goodbye that way. So it's a, it's a difficult thing. I think the ones that we sell and process the best time to eat a goat is between say, you know, 11 months and 18 months old. And so truthfully you're not as attached at that point. And even though the day that I drove those goats down, I could probably tell you quite a bit about them and how many you know, which ones had hoof problems and which ones didn't. And at this point, you know, they weren't that familiar. I have one really old mother. I mean, she's no longer, we we don't breed her anymore. She's probably had 25 or 30 kids in her time. Wilma's mama is what her name is. She doesn't even have her own name. And she's only, she's down to one horn. She's having trouble chewing feed. And she's lived way past The life expectancy of a goat. What I'll end up with is having to take her and bury her one day. Truthfully, if I'd have sold her when she was seven instead of kept her until she was fourteen, I wouldn't have to deal with that. But sometimes you get too attached. You know, we had one Billy goat that was uh, was born during Katrina, and you remember that awful line that uh, George Bush said about the uh, FEMA director, uh, yeah, and I, I Brownie. For, and Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. <laughs> this brown goat was born in the middle of Katrina. And uh, when I decided that that line was a good line for a billy goat, not a good line for the FEMA director. So we kept Brownie. Brownie was was like eight years of breeding. I mean, we, there's no way I could have gotten rid of, you know, I could have loaned him to somebody, but I would have wanted to make sure he was going to be all right because we had just been around him so much. And he's 300 pounds of familiarity
1: and tough meat i'd imagine
0: and tough meat
1: and what happened
0: he died of natural causes
1: he died of old age huh? he
0: died of old age and i kept his horns he did a heck of a job <laughs> <laughs>
1: You've been listening to the 27 Views interview with Tom Rankin. He is a goat farmer, as well as a noted photographer and documentarian. He served as director of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University for 15 years, and now directs Duke's MFA program in Documentary Studies and Experimental Arts. His photographs have been exhibited and published widely. His books include Sacred Space, Photographs from the Mississippi Delta, and Local Heroes Changing America, Indivisible. He is married to novelist Joe McCorkle, and they have recently collaborated on a book entitled Goat Light. It is a collection of black and white photos of, and written reflections on, their goat farm located in a rural corner of North Carolina's busy Triangle region. If you would like to hear Tom read his entire story, Raising Goats to Their Rightful Place, from the anthology, The Carolina Table, you can find the link to it on our website at enopublishers.org. That's enopublishers, with an S at the end.org. 27 Views is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Woodman. That's me. Editing and final mixing for this episode by Mark Maximoff. Executive producers are Elizabeth Benfey and Ezra Rawich. Production assistants for this episode are Palmer Anderson and Lulu Hallman. Music is from Bluegrass Boogie by The Undertones and is available on Epidemic Sound. 27 Views theme music is the composition called Cory in the Meadow, written and performed by Bruno Luchron. Please join us next time for more stories of the South on the 27 Views Podcast.